Back in the 90s, and part of my goal here is a little cultural education for the younger people here, but uh, back in the 90s, there was this really important, great television show called Star Trek The Next Generation. Can I get can I get a witness? All right. And one of the great episodes of this great show, this long-running show, was called Darmok. And in this episode, our beloved Captain Picard finds himself on a planet with a humanoid alien. And thanks to the universal translator, they can talk with each other. But it becomes clear that Picard doesn't understand the English that he's hearing. This is because this alien that he's trying to work with uh, is using metaphors and images that are embedded in the stories of his own culture. And so although it's coming across in English, it doesn't make any sense. The ideas, the words are there, but the ideas don't work. And so it takes them a while to figure this out. Now, it's interesting, actually, that speaking to a reality, it's interesting to consider how, even just on our planet, how different languages and cultures use metaphors and images in different ways Sometimes we can understand them, sometimes we can't. But just in English, for example, think of all the body metaphors we use, like butterflies in the stomach, chip on my shoulder, long arm of the law, butter fingers, long in the tooth, foot the bill, toe the line, blue in the face. And we could go on and on. And again, some of those make sense, but some of them would not translate. And of course, it goes the other way as well. If you've ever been in another country or learned another language, you'll run across metaphors that don't kind of quite come across, and I find these very interesting. So in Polish, for example, someone who's crazy can be defined as has a cat. So don't, don't go too far with that. Or to get hemorrhoids in Polish is to catch a wolf. I'm not sure what that means exactly. The Germans will, stay, will say, stop harboring murderers in my heart. Sounds very violent for what we would say is get something off my chest. And the French... Uh, to say, feel yourself getting angry will say, to have mustard getting up your nose, I guess. <laughs> My favorite ones, though, the best ones are for vomiting. And it, it, different languages have different ones. So in Polish, to vomit is to leave the peacock, I guess, to... But the best one, the best one is Swedish for vomit, which is to lay down a pizza. <laughs> Fordy schmordy, I guess, right? Now, the question is, what in the world does this have to do with the Bible and Christianity and this morning's sermon? Well, I think it does in this way, that in today's text, once we get to the heart of it, we are going to see that it all boils down to a key metaphor, a key biblical image or idea that drives what God is saying to us today. But that metaphor or image is actually different in the biblical culture than it is for us. And so we have a little groundwork before we can get there. So I want you just to hold on to that thought, but that's where we're going. Now today, we're gonna to be in 1 Samuel 16, and I want us to think about this message and how we're gonna organize our time together is like a three-story building. So the three different stories I wanna talk about. My message today has these three stories that build on each other. So the first is going to be the story of 1 Samuel 16. And the second story is going to be how that story fits into the whole story or message of the Bible. And then finally, how that connects right to our story. So those are the three stories of what we're gonna be talking about. But before we jump in, let me pray for us once more. Our kind Father, we thank you that despite uh, all the different things we show up with today, 
Uh, you are the same and you're kind and you're good and you're powerful and you're glad to speak and pour out life upon your people. And so I offer myself as a imperfect vessel, but ask that you would come and, and fill us with the spirit that we might understand and taste your goodness today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today uh, we are continuing, this is our second week in a new series we're doing here at Sojourn on the life of David. And last week, uh, Pastor Kevin uh, kicked off our series, nice metaphor, by talking not about David, actually, even the series, but about another person. Um, he talked about King Saul, the first king of Israel. And that's the right place, actually, to start a series on the life of David, because Saul's story is the crucial setup for what happens with what we're gonna see for the next several weeks in the life of David, including today. Now, David's story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16, which means that obviously it's not the beginning of 1 Samuel. There's been 15 chapters worth of stuff that has happened. And what has happened? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. Those 15 chapters are a story of basically two different characters. One, a prophet anointed from God named Samuel, and this first king of Israel named Saul. And in these chapters, a lot of stuff happens, but we can sum it up this way. God is caring for and leading his people through this prophet Samuel, who's like a, a judge and a governor and a leader among them. He's filled with the spirit. But the Israelites, God's people, they want to be like all the other nations around them. They don't want to be led by this spiritual pneumatic judge. They want a brave warrior king that rescues them and protects them like everybody else around them. So despite warnings from God that this is not a good idea, God gives them the king they want. It's kind of like a loving father who sees his 20-year-old son maybe making some kind of foolish choices I'm not thinking of mine here, but just in general, some foolish choices. And yet they're an adult and, you know, lets them make those choices. And I think that's what happens in these chapters. And so it starts off really well, but it goes downhill fast. And so by chapter 15, Saul, King Saul has disobeyed. He's lied. He's been deceptive. He's self-deceived. He's become a fearful leader. He's losing the confidence of his people. His own son, Jonathan, really becomes a better leader than him. And he's leading Israel into destruction. And so then chapter 15 ends with these devastating words. I mean, look at them. 1535 says, until the day Samuel died, the prophet, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him and these words, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And wow, that's actually not the total end of King Saul's story because what we're gonna see over the next several weeks is that for the next 10 years or so, Saul's story and David's story are going to intertwine back and forth before David finally comes into his kingdom. But that story starts here. This is the real turning point. And look there with me at chapter 16, verse one. So the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? So now fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So at this point, Samuel is old, he's tired, he's depressed, understandably. I mean, this whole uh, king thing has been a disaster. He's mourning for it. He's probably hopeless, but God is on the move and doing something new. 
God hasn't given up on his people, even though they've been really stupid. And so he calls Samuel and sends him on a new errand. And that, that key language there is fill your horn with oil. That's a key phrase that God has not done with Israel. A hollowed out sheep's horn filled with precious oil is the sign of a new king, king coming because the prophet will anoint this new king with oil to run down his hair and his, and his beard. And that's a sign of being set apart and chosen by God to do something. And, and the Hebrew word for that is masach, which gets translated eventually into English as Messiah and in Greek as Christos. And I'm sure you've already made the connection. It's not an accident that, you know, Jesus' Jesus' last name is not Christ. It's a title uh, that means the same thing. It means anointed one. And that's not an accident. This is all connected together. But let's go back to our story in Samuel and see what happens. Look at verse two. So Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So then invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So God tells Samuel to go and anoint a new king, but Samuel's no dummy. He realizes there's great danger in this because the last time he was with Saul back in chapter 15, it was clear that God had rejected Saul and Saul knew about it and Saul was not happy about it. And so if he now hears that Samuel's going to anoint a new king in Bethlehem, understandably, this is gonna result in Samuel's death. This is treason and the new anointed ones as well. So he goes to Bethlehem with a little subterfuge here. He, he goes legitimately to worship and that's what he publicly says, but only he knows and God knows that he's also going to anoint a new king. But he's not the only one who's worried. Look at verse four. Samuel did what the Lord said, and we arrived in Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him, and they said, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come, come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, Bethlehem is just a little village in southern Israel, and when the famous prophet Samuel shows up, I think we can understand they weren't too excited. In fact, as it says, they were trembling and they asked with plastic smiles, Shalom, Salam to you, do you come in peace? Why? Well, because these are hard and scary times. Things were not kosher between Saul and Samuel. Everyone knows that. People know that King Saul is a little off his rocker now. If they're found to be involved in this treacherous, this treasonous act of going against the king, they'll probably be completely wiped out as well. Also, Samuel is known to be a very powerful prophet. He's the one in the last chapter who actually hacked the king of the Amalekites to death. Prophets are great, but you don't want to party with them, right? I mean, prophets are great for somebody else's town. They're not really somebody you want to hang out with, right? They're good from a distance, okay? So you can imagine the Bethlehemites are glad when Samuel says, yes, I've come in peace, but I bet they're still quite guarded. Let's have a worship service and a feast, Samuel says, and so good enough. Everyone goes through the rituals that are prescribed by the law to purify themselves before the sacrifice, including Jesse, who has this whole gaggle of sons. He's a Bethlehemite. Now, none of the people of Bethlehem know what's really going on here, except for Samuel and God. So the story continues. So they have the feast. Jesse and his seven strapping sons arrive at the feast. And right in verse six, we learn that when Samuel sees Jesse's oldest son, who he knows one of these is gonna be the king, his name is Eliab, Samuel's very confident that his work is done. This guy is a stud. 
He is tall, he's attractive, he's handsome, he's a clear warrior and king to be. He's probably the quarterback of the Bethlehem Stars football team. The Bethlehem High School yearbook had him as most likely to succeed, I'm sure. In fact, it reminds us of the description from, of Saul from 1 Samuel 9, 2, that he's tall and a warrior and an obvious king to be. But no sooner does, Saul, does Samuel see him and he's fingering the cap on his his oil horn, that the Lord speaks to him clearly and says, this is not the one. Okay, Lord, Jesse, who's next? And we see in verses eight to 10, the short version of an increasingly awkward scene. Samuel is probably seated down. He's the elder prophet and everyone is coming by to meet this famous prophet, kind of like at the merch table after a concert, right? Or the parading of the grandchildren in front of the patriarch at a family reunion, right? And so next comes up son number two, Abinadab. He's a little shorter, a little younger, but looks good. Nailed it. Oil ready? Nope. The Lord tells Samuel again. Awkward smiles. Nice to meet you too. Why are you here? I don't know why I'm here either, right? <laughs> next number three, Shammah. A little shorter again, a little younger, but he'll do another no from the Lord. Okay, this is getting a little uncomfortable. And it's a classic story. In fact, the author of 1 Samuel doesn't even tell us the names of the rest of the sons, the other four, but you get the picture. They all come parading by, all seven sons, each getting younger and shorter, awkward smiles. Why are we doing this? Nice to meet you, nice to meet you too. Oy vey, none of them are the one. It's like a whole season of The Bachelor where no bachelorette is chosen at the end, right? <laughs> so now what? Well, then look at verse 11. So Samuel asked Jesse, are, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse's response is, they're still the youngest, but he's sending the sheep. Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. We're not gonna go forward with the feast. So finally, see Samuel's in this dilemma. He knows God told him one of the sons of Jesse is gonna be the king. He's seen all the sons of Jesse. So the only thing that this can mean is, wait, is there another son that you haven't brought before me? Do you have any other sons? And it turns out Jesse doesn't have seven sons. He has eight but his youngest son wasn't even invited to the feast because, well, obviously, he's the runt of the litter. And after all, somebody has to stay back and take care of all the livestock, the sheep. It wouldn't, make, wouldn't be fair, wouldn't make any sense for all the older brothers to miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to, give me, to, get the, to meet the famous uh, prophet. So all makes sense, totally logical, but completely wrong. Send for the boy. And then we find in verses 12 and 13, the climactic and long-awaited scene in our short film. Look at it there. So he sent for him, had him brought in. He was glowing. We don't even know his name yet. He was glowing with health. He had a fine appearance, handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully, rushed upon, flooded upon David. And then Samuel left and went to Ramah. Now, what Jesse and the seven older brothers thought of this, we don't know. Sounds to me, they were probably shocked and maybe even chagrined. Sounds a little bit like Joseph among his brothers, very young one who rises up. Um, you see, the fact that David is the youngest is not just a chronological statement, but is also even more so than it would be for us, a statement about his place in society. 
the youngest of eight sons, that's really low on the food chain. I've got six kids, I, I understand. And he is the most insignificant person. That's not true of my youngest one. He's the most insignificant person, but in this culture of this whole big family. He wasn't even part of the worship ceremony and feast. From any human reckoning, this guy is unfit to be king. But it's that plot twist that the whole story hangs on. And in fact, it's really, this whole story has like these marks of like just being a classic tale, like Goldilocks, all in order. This porridge is just right. I mean, it's like the last one. It has a sense of finally this one, or really even as one scholar has pointed out, it's like David's like a male Cinderella, right? It's, it's remarkable. He's, he's stuck back doing the chores while all the other brothers go to the ball, yet he's chosen to be the one. It's like a classic turnaround story. And we'll see that in the coming weeks, that even though David is anointed as the new king, it's going to be 10 years, as I said, 10 years of suffering, 10 years of difficulty, 10 years of refinement before he'll finally become the great king. But for now, in this story, what does it mean? Well, I love uh, First and Second Samuel. In fact, next to the Gospels, First and Second Samuel are by far my favorite uh, stories of the Bible. There's always, they're always interesting, always fun to read, fun to teach and preach. And while some of the stories in the Bible can be difficult to understand and difficult to wrestle with, my experience of First and Second Samuel is that most of them are really easy to read. That is really easy to understand. They're like slow pitches that you can hit out of the park. They are low-hanging ripe fruit that just barely touch and it falls right into your hand. And this story is no exception. And in fact, the clear point of it is found in verse seven, which I haven't read for you yet, but you can look there now. Right after God tells Samuel that the first son, Eliab, is not the one, here's what the Lord also says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There it is. People like you and me look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is not only, I would suggest to you clearly the point of this story, it's just, this is actually probably the point of all of 1st and 2nd Samuel. We'll see this in the stories yet to come. But if you, if you think back, it is, it is a major theme all throughout all these stories, and we'll see it again and again. But we can't and shouldn't stop there. In fact, I said I want us to think, that's the first part. This first story is just what's going on in 1st Samuel 16. I think the point's right there in verse 7. People look at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. But there's a second story, too, and that is, how does this relate to the bigger story of the Bible? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here's the question. What does that mean? And can you think of other things in the Bible, other places where this idea comes up again? To understand this, we have to think for a moment about what this idea of the heart is. Now, remember, back at the beginning, I was talking about there being different metaphors or different images that different cultures use, and here's why that matters. In English, starting back in the 14th century, from what we can tell, heart came to being the seat of emotions. Like if you ask somebody what heart means, um, especially love and then especially romantic love. After all, we use this, you know, symbolic version of it at Valentine's Day, and that's all fine and good. 
But in the ancient languages and cultures of both Hebrew and Greek, the languages the Bible are written in, that's actually not quite what heart means. It means something a little different. Just different cultures use these images differently. In those languages, the seed of emotions, especially compassion, they don't depict that with heart. They depict that with intestines, okay? And we might kind of use that like guts or something. But care and compassion are often said your guts, your intestines, even your bowels uh, are at play, right? And so when I often teach this to Greek students, I once had this brilliant idea to try to explain this, and then a student went and made an image of a T-shirt for me, that if in Greek <laughs> you wanted to depict this image, it would be I splonknidzomai is the Greek word, I intestine New York or whatever it is, right? So it's a, it's a little different. If any of you want to buy me that T-shirt, I will gladly wear it next time I preach because I'll rip it open at some point or something. But that, that's the image. But, so then what does heart mean? If that's how they communicate what we would do with heart, what does heart mean? Well, heart in the Bible, it's not totally disconnected from that, but it's actually a bigger and more important idea than even just emotions. Heart in the Bible means who we really are on the inside. Heart is bigger than just our emotions. It's closer to maybe what we might say soul for. It's the inside person, your character, um, who you truly are. And I think that helps us make sense of 16.7 and helps us see it very clearly and powerfully. Humanity tends to look at people externally while God looks at people internally. It's the inside of the person who we really are, not just our emotions, but who we are, our character, who we are. God sees and cares about our hearts, our inner person more than anything else. While you and I, we tend to reverse this order and we tend to value the outside more than the inside. And of course, the point here is not that the uglier something is on the outside, the better. The, the point of this is not like it has to be the opposite. It's an important note that in our story, David is not, it's not that all David's brothers are attractive and then he, you know, has like nine legs and two heads and is really unattractive to look at. That's not the point. He's actually attractive and handsome too. The point is not that, it ha that the inside and the outside have to be different. The point is that we as finite creatures are driven by our embodied senses, our eyes and our ears, and we regularly then misjudge and misevaluate people and situations based on the external only when what God looks at is primarily the inside, the character of a person, or in biblical language, the heart. Our bodies matter too to God, but he looks at the inside and how that works out on the outside where we think of the outside. Now, here's the question. Can you think of other places in the Bible where this same idea comes up? I think there are lots of them. I think we'll see this lots of places. I, I'd suggest to you that this idea that humanity looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart is like a master key that unlocks a lot of rooms of the Bible. It's like a circuit breaker that you flip on and then several of the rooms of the Bible make sense. They have light. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. For example, the rest of First and Second Samuel, we'll see. Uh, David and Goliath, and on and on. The same story works out, we'll see. But one place was just what happened in the last chapter, in chapter 15, when Samuel comes to Saul and says, to obey is better than to sacrifice. What does that mean? It means a number of things. But one thing that it means is actually doing from the heart what God cares about is more important than actually just doing the rituals that are established. Later on, 
The prophets will speak this way a lot, the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah will speak against people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Hosea will talk about and, and challenge people that if they, have, if they don't have compassion for other people, it does not matter if you do all the sacrificial system. Jeremiah will talk about the wrongness of people holding feasts and festivals, external matters, without caring for the people's needs from the heart. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel will speak about a future time coming, a new covenant, when God will replace the heart of stone, the interior, with a living beating heart, and he'll write his laws on our hearts, not just externally in the commandments. And when we jump ahead to the New Testament, it's very easy to see the same thing. In Jesus' teachings, for example, that it's the pure in heart who will see God. It's the humble in heart, the poor in spirit, who will be flourishing. And one of the most powerful places you see this is in the very famous Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is a conflict of the Pharisees is all based on this precise idea. You always have to remember, the Pharisees are good guys. I've said this to you probably from this pulpit before. The Pharisees are the conservatives of the day. So they're good guys from an external perspective. But Jesus' conflict with them is not about their external morality. It's that there's a huge disconnect between their external lives and what God sees and really cares about their hearts. Hypocrisy, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is not someone living a dual outside life. That is a kind of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is someone who has their life together, but their hearts are far from God. 1 Corinthians 13, a familiar passage, not just for weddings and cross-stitching, cross but a really important theological text that says the same thing that if you or I have, can speak in tongues, we have great gifts of speaking abilities and all these things, all of that is nothing if we lack love. Nothing if we lack love. I think closely related to this, we also see the theme of God reversing our expectations in this and exalting the lowly. This is part of this story as well. Just like David becomes... He's the lowest and he becomes the highest. You think of Hannah, who we met at the beginning of 1 Samuel, who is, goes from being barren to being this important mother. Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, true of Jesus as well. Think of 1 Corinthians 1.28 and 29, God chooses the lowly things of the world so that no one can boast. Or we think of all the stories where the younger brother ends up being more important than the older one, Abel and Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Moses over Aaron. We think of women whose roles are reversed, Sarah and Hagar, Leah and Rachel, Hannah and Tamar, Harry, Ron and Neville over Draco. It's all the same, <laughs> right? They're, from an external perspective, things look one way, but often the great truths are that there's a great reversal. And of course, ultimately, Jesus is the example of the exalted king who takes the low road. He is humble. He is a servant. He gives his life for others. He is the true shepherd, the true son of David in that sense. So my point is that this story in 1 Samuel 16, it's not just a fluke or a one-off. 
It is at the core, I would suggest to you, of the Bible's vision and message. We humans look at the outward appearance of people and things and situations, but God sees and cares about the inside, the heart, the character, the inner person. And so now, there's just one more move we need to make, our third story, one more flight of stairs to take in our three-story house, and that is not just the First Samuel 16 story, thinking about it in the whole story of the Bible, but then our story. How does this message of 1 Samuel 16 that's in the whole Bible connect to our stories today? Well, I'd suggest to you that just like Samuel, you know this, you and I are so prone to look at things by the outside appearances, not the inside. We love and choose what is impressive, shiny, powerful, pleasing, we, we value possessions and talents and a certain face and body symmetry. This is a human tendency always and everywhere, but it's hard to imagine a culture that is more into this than ours because whether it's selfies or Instagram or other social media, our obsession with celebrities, we are constantly aware of presenting ourselves externally so that people will view us positively. And we are constantly evaluating other people according to this external. And I'm not just talking about like social media is evil. All I'm saying is that social media in our culture just exploits something that is true of all people throughout all time and gives us an amazingly scary way to let that be how we show up. How many of you have had this situation that I've had as well? where you have some Facebook friend, maybe it's not somebody you see that often, but for years you see all these wonderful pictures of them with their family and husband and wife on vacation, all this. And the next thing you know, their profile's gone and, and those people are divorced. You think, what, what happened? I, it all looked great, right? And there's something about our culture, this aspect of our culture that is, I feel like barreling towards this emphasizing the external and not paying attention to the internal more than ever. This message from 1 Samuel 16, the whole Bible, is a call. It's an invitation for you and me to start looking at yourself and at others differently, not enamored by the externals, but valuing most highly what God sees, the inner person. What I mean is this. This means you and I need to start focusing on the inside of ourselves. For example, why do you do what you do? We need to not be content to just go through the motions of Christianity or morality, but we need to start paying attention to what's inside. And some of you today, um, you've been on this inward journey for a long time and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you, um, maybe you're just beginning this journey where you're starting to actually pay attention to what's really going on. And some of you, maybe today, you've actually never really thought about it that way. Maybe you're just trying really hard to be a good person or be a good Christian or whatever it is, be a good father or husband or um, wife or mother or friend. But I want to invite you that if God actually says that he sees and cares about the inner person, that's where he starts, then friends, we need to do the same thing. We need to start looking on the inside and saying, that's what God sees and cares about. So I need to start paying attention. Maybe that means for you, you need to start seeing a counselor, right? Maybe 
That means you need to start being more open with friends or community group or others about what's really going on inside. Find a safe person to do that. Uh, a ministry I've been involved with for many years, Men at the Cross and Women at the Cross, I highly recommend as a place where you can start to do that as well. You've got to do, if this is what God sees and cares about, you and I need to do the same. It also means we need to start focusing on the inside of others. But that's not what you think I mean. I don't mean by that that we can start believing that we could understand what's motivating somebody else. That's the worst thing you could do. Start judging people. I'm not just going to judge people externally. I'm going to judge them internally too or something, right? That's not my point. That would be missing the whole point. When I say focusing on the inside of others, not the outside, what I mean is this. Let's stop acting and showing up like Christianity is a set of values, political or moral or social. And instead, here the scripture is saying that if God looks on the inside of people, that's what we need to focus on as well in this sense, that God's measuring rod, his Geiger counter, his thermography gun is pointed at our hearts, our character, our inner person. And what I mean is this, there are plenty of people that we may praise and look up to and want to be close to for a number of reasons. Maybe they're really smart. Maybe they're really super conservative defenders of the faith. Maybe they have fancy prayers. Maybe they're a successful Christian businessman or a Christian woman who seems to have it all together. But friends, if they're jerks and they're not motivated by love in the inner person, then hear me clearly, none of that matters to God. It does not matter to God if someone has it all together and has all the things that we would praise if their hearts are far from him. So we need to not be part of that problem. We need to not be enamored with people because they've got money and connections and whatever else we might value. And, and we, they're successful, so we want to be with them and we kind of don't really care about the people that aren't that way as much. Friends, if we're doing that, we are not seeing the world as God sees the world. And just the opposite, there are many people in this room, and this is always a sobering thought to me, that are going to get more honor and more glory from God in the end than any of us probably who are standing up here who have certain gifts and personality types. And I'm very aware of that because God doesn't measure according to how talented we are. He measures according to the inner person. God sees and cares about the heart. And so that's what we need to value in each other as well. Not in a judgmental way, but in an honoring way. Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I Have a Dream speech envisions and hopes for a time when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Great insight. And I think that applies not only to race today, but also to the other things that we might evaluate people wrongly on. Talents, money, intelligence, personality type, advantages, privilege, stature in society. Friends, God doesn't care about any of that. He does not need anybody's money. He does not need anybody's talents. What he cares about is who we are on the inside. So let me invite you to start sharing God's vision, not evaluating ourselves or others by externals, but by what God sees the heart. Let me drill down another level and say this. Young people, some of you there, those here who are maybe in your teens and 20s, maybe a little older, who are not yet married but are interested in that, marry a person of character. Marry a person of character, male or female, because a person of character 
gets more beautiful as the years go by, even while outward beauty will always fade. You know that. Some of you older people know this. A character person will get more beautiful. Of course, ugliness or lack of attractiveness or lack of abilities is never a virtue in and of itself. Again, it's not saying that physical beauty or talents or connections are bad, but that's a terrible way to choose a mate is what I'm saying. And men tend to be much stupider in this than women. (laughs) Women are really pretty savvy that they care about character more than appearance. Thank God, right? (laughs) Which means that normal to ugly looking guys like me can get hot wives, right? That's the, that's the great hope. And when people, whenever you see somebody like, that looks like me and you see somebody who looks like my wife, you say, how did that happen? Well, the only hope is that women are more thoughtful than men are about pursuing people of character. So young people really hear that. And of course, that means you should focus on the kind of character you are so that you will be the kind of person that a person of character would want to marry, right? So focus on character. To another group, I'd say this. Anyone today who is in a place of power or influence or privilege or talent or authority or accolades, if that's where you are today, that's all fine and good. There's nothing wrong with honor where honor is due and people who work hard should have money and things like that. There's nothing wrong with that. I would just say, don't deceive yourself because no matter how much accolade or connections or talent or cleverness or anything you have, if your person, if your character is corrupt, that's who you really are. And that's what God sees and cares about. And I'm speaking to myself here as well, right? All of us, we have to think very specifically about paying attention to the inside. And another group, anybody today who's not in that case, maybe you feel today like a nobody or a second-class person. I just say to you, you don't have to be special or the best or the most talented or the most clever to be used by God. He doesn't need your talents. What he cares about is your heart. Now, what you can do then, these things are mostly out of your control, your talents, your connections, your money. A lot of that's out of your control. But what's in your control is opening yourself to the Lord and saying, God, work in my heart, work in the inner person. And I'm very, very, very hesitant to say what I'm about to say because I don't want to use myself as an illustration as if I've arrived or anything or that I'm perfect. But I want to say this as an encouragement to you. I grew up very poor. Uh, My father died when I was young. I was very lonely small town, no connections, never made the basketball team. I always wanted to be on the junior pros who would spin these red, white, and blue basketballs. I always got cut from that. I mean, I, I, you know, I was nobody, right? And it led to an adolescence of depression and drugs. But then when I saw the light and God made me alive by his kind grace for decades after that, from age 18, all throughout my 20s and 30s especially, I had no vision of what my life would become. I didn't think I'd become a pastor or a professor or have a PhD or write books or speak or anything, but I did pray one thing. God, work deeply in my heart and make me into your image. And I feel like in his grace, 
He's then, as I sought first the kingdom, he's added all these things. And again, I hesitate to say as if like, hey, you know, you too can have a success story. <laughs> That's not, or that I'm perfect now. I, there's lots of problems. In fact, I wish I had the heart that I had when I was 20. I feel like I'm probably more self-protective than I was even then, honestly, right? But the point is, I want to invite you to say wherever you are, if you don't feel like you came from connections and money and don't have the highest ACT score or whatever, do the one thing you can do that God really cares about, open yourself to him. And he will be glad to use you. In all these situations and more, remember the beautiful truth from David's story that people look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And to conclude, let me just share one more image. I, I mentioned Goldilocks and Cinderella. I was also then thinking about Beauty and the Beast. In fact, I've been reflecting on that it's really, Beauty and the Beast is a fine title, but it's really the tale of three beauties and their different outcomes. You have Gaston, who's great on the outside. It's true, LeFou. I'm the most beautiful. Don't I deserve the most beautiful, right? But he's rotten on the inside, isn't he? And the result is destruction. You have the beast who is ugly on the outside. And in fact, he starts off rotten on the inside, but his is a journey um, of his pride being broken down through suffering and coming to value character over beauty. And then you have Belle, whose name means beauty. I'm almost about to break into the song, right? <laughs> she's actually a pretty mixed character, if you think about it, because she, um, she's beautiful herself on the outside, but she's not perfect in her heart because she doesn't value the beast and doesn't see him. And she wants to get out of this small provincial town, right? She wants to live the big life. She wants to get out, but she also learns to value not the external, but the internal of the character. So who are you today or where are you today? Are you guests on where things look great on the outside, but maybe are bad on the inside? Are you like the beast? You've been proud, but God is now bringing you low and you're starting to change. Or maybe like many of us, Bell, where you're mixed, you have really mixed motives in all you do. No matter what, I have good news. No matter where any of us are today, the incredible news is that we don't have to fix everything, that God is in the business through Jesus of turning us and changing us from the inside out. And he looks upon us. He knows the inside of you and me even better than you and I do. And he loves us. He looks upon us and says, welcome, come. It does not matter today, right now, if you're starting to look inside and you see a lot of garbage, that's okay. He knows that more than you do. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy and light, come. And so as we come to the table today is the same words, come. Whether your heart is in a good place or in a horrible place, you can turn to God today and receive his grace because he sees the heart and he cares about that and you don't have to get it all together to come to him. And the message of the gospel that we celebrate through the table is that Jesus gave his own body so that we who are broken inside and outside can be restored. His body represented by the bread and his blood poured out represented by the wine. And the beauty of this is that if you are a Christian today, I wanna to invite you to come forward and inviting you to a new level of being open to God at your heart. Let today be a day where you say, God, I see all kinds of problems in my life, but I know you love me 
and you're working in me by the power of the Spirit. So come forward and partake of this table with that act of faith and worship and God will meet you. If you're not a Christian today, we're so glad you're here. You're not sure where you are. This is not a magical ritual. This isn't gonna do you any good. This is an act of faith, but come talk to me. Come talk to anybody you saw on the platform. We would love to just help you think about opening your heart to God. Stay in your seat and use this as a time of prayer, but come either way, whether it's in your heart or with your bodies, come to the Lord this morning who knows and sees your heart and loves you. Let's pray.